Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This is The Guardian. The analogy I'm thinking through at the moment is if a statement from the heart was an invitation to Australia to make peace with our history, then the constitutional change is the RSVP. It's accepting the invitation and then putting it on our legislature to come up with effective models that may change over time. Hello, lovely pod people. It's Catherine Murphy here and you are on Australian Politics. We're coming together today to analyse, as we do each fortnight, the latest Guardian Essential Poll data. I'm joined by Peter Lewis, who is the Executive Director at Essential Media, and he guides us through the numbers. This week we are discussing really, you know, well, I guess the sort of events of the last several months and specifically the events of the last fortnight, which has been the opening two sitting weeks of the 47th Parliament. We sort of unpack the challenges before the new Labor government, the Albanese government. They're trying to work out how to govern during an ongoing global pandemic, uh, an ongoing cost of living crisis, war in Ukraine, threat of war in our region, all sorts of global challenges. And uh, the new government is also seeking to try and keep its own agenda on track, passing legislation, uh, establishing new climate targets, foreshadowing next steps on an Indigenous voice to Parliament and a bunch of other measures. Uh, this conversation was recorded on Tuesday and it uh, comes from a webinar program which is hosted by the progressive think tank, the Australia Institute. Just a note, if you are listening, obviously, and you are, you're with me here on the pod, in the pod version, it's handy if you pull up, if you go to the Essential Media website and you pull up the slides of the latest Guardian Essential poll, it's very easy to track down and then uh, that sort of makes more sense of Pete's taking you through the numbers if you can see the charts in front of you. This conversation is always uh, moderated by Ebony Bennett, uh, the Deputy Director of the Australia Institute. Poor old Eb has COVID this fortnight but fronted up like the good soldier she is and, uh, and fronted this conversation remotely, of course. I'm about to hand over to Ebony, who uh, opens this episode by asking me about the dramatic changes happening in Canberra and across the country. Listen up. Feels like real change in the air in Parliament. I don't know if you felt that after that first couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. You know, there's that adage, change the government, change the country. I haven't been to all the far reaches of Australia in the last five minutes, so I can't tell you whether the whole country is comprehensively changed. But certainly the temper and tenor and tone of politics in Canberra has changed. And 
there has been a sort of explosion of activity, obviously, with the new government in town, you know, every member of civil society, every interest group, you know, big business right through to, you know, not-for-profits, everybody's here and uh, and trying to engage the new government and, and sort of get a fix on the new government. And these guys are moving fast. Uh, you know, that's the other thing to, to say. Uh, the first uh, couple of sitting weeks, we saw, as it mentioned, the passage uh, through the lower house of the government's climate targets legislation. We we also saw, you know, legislation introduced covering aged care and domestic and, and family violence leave. They're moving apace and, and I think uh, they want to convey that sense of movement that there's there has been a change and they want to sort of start moving through that quickly because I think it's the thing about progressive governments, they always feel on the clock because Labor is not the natural party of government at the federal level. That's, you know, what, what history and statistics show us. I think Labor governments always race in and start going because you never know quite how long you're going to be there for. But that said, I think they're moving at a manageable pace. There's been no sort of, you know, massive screw-ups at this point in time or, you know, right hand not talking to the left hand very obviously. Obviously, we've got to see how they bed down. Uh, but, yeah, it's certainly been a really interesting couple of weeks. Certainly has been. I feel like, um, as you said, there's been a lot on the agenda, but poor old Murray Watts seems to be an extremely hardworking minister. <laughs> <laughs> Multiple biosecurity bio threats and natural disasters. He's really had to hit the ground running. I just mentioned that because I saw the, the biosecurity kind of um, strategy document and it's not like there's not a lot to contend with on that front. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know. And it's sort of, uh, I think with Murray Watt too, uh, I think most folks on, on the call with us today or on the show with us today will, will have a reasonable sense of who Murray Watt is. Uh, but he's like a tractor in low gear. He's a very relentless character. And uh, I think it was sort of a point of pride really over the last couple of years in particular where he's sort of taken the Taken the politics up to uh, up to the Morrison government very hard, so I think I think he's worn a little bit of the blowback in relation to that over the the you know the the sort of opening sorties in his portfolio. I think there's a lot of coalition people that are intensely irritated by Murray Watts' relentlessness. And as you say, Ebony, he's been a very busy beaver with all these moving parts. And as we're here together uh, on the show today, he's actually talking to the National Press Club. Well, there you go. <laughs> Pete, before we kind of get into the slides, I wondered if I could ask you, what are some of the things that we're going to look at today in the in the polling and that you've noticed in these first couple of weeks of the new parliament? Yeah, thanks, Herbert. Hi, everyone. We do have a look at the attitude to voice given the, the Prime Minister's articulation of the proposition at Gama a couple of weeks ago, but also looking at some of the responses to a number of the economic challenges the government's facing. I don't think it's quite up yet, but the column I've got going up in The Guardian today sort of looks at the backdrop to the new parliament being the cacophony of a world in turmoil, you know, um, missiles being fired off Taiwan, the war in the Ukraine, a global pandemic, climate catastrophe. It's at a moment when the, the notion of a global village is really breaking down, Labor comes to power as nations around the world try to redefine what a nation actually is. I think, you know, you look at 
for instance, the Ukraine, where a sense of nationhood is a is a vital tool in protecting the nation. You look at Australia and after the last um, sort of particularly the last term of the government where Morrison managed to alienate everyone from the French to the post-Trump US administration to Pacific neighbours, like who didn't get offended. Now Labor's trying to rebuild what a sense of nationhood looks like. So my column posits that there are certain things, particularly around economy, which you know, you can't do a lot. You you can kind of duck and cover as the world um, goes into energy shortages and inflationary spirals. But what you can do is define yourself as a nation on the global stage. And I think the um, passing of the um, the targets on climate is almost like the necessary first step into entering polite global society again and maybe the second part is dealing with our history so that we can move forward via the voice yeah so pete if we dive in now to this first slide it's not like there's been any catastrophic fall but it's probably off the high i think news poll had it at 61 the other day um we had after election 59 narrowing a little bit you know their solid leadership numbers post honeymoon also a bit of a narrowing in that kind of right track, wrong track, which is kind of one of our little lodestars on, on how people see the nation as opposed to the government is heading. And, of course, what's driving that is cost of living at the moment. I think we've got another slide there just showing how, well, before we get there, we put a number of propositions about the performance of the Albanese government to date. So people think they're focused on the things that really matter getting things done, as Catherine was saying, they are moving, addressing long-term problems. So they're all above the 50%, although not overwhelmingly. And I might add that these are forced choices so we didn't let people say don't know. They're all net positive, but it is, it, it's back into that kind of narrow territory of mid-50s, mid-40s, isn't it? But I'll, I'll do one more slide before we maybe sort of come up for air, which is the cost of living. So we've got 84% of people saying that they are concerned about the current rate of inflation and the impact this is having on the cost of living. And that really does link into, if you remember a fortnight ago, people self-describing their economic situation with more than half people saying they're either struggling or just managing to hang on. So one more data point, again, from a fortnight ago, People do see the government having control over these economic levers, even though in reality, I think there is a fair bit of hit and hope going on. Catherine, did you want to respond to that? I know the Treasurer has kind of been very open about the headwinds the economy is facing, the situation, but kind of still waiting to hear a little bit more detail ahead of the budget about what some of those specific inflation fighting measures might look like. And of course, we've got the review of the RBA coming up. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of moving parts there. And obviously, there's a very difficult set of conditions for uh, the government to manage and it'll be, uh, I think, drawing on all of that initial goodwill that, that we can see in the polling numbers in order to navigate the, you know, the sort of next next six to six to 12 to 18 months really before uh, conditions are forecast to moderate. So Pete referred to uh, the polling from a fortnight ago and the fortnight before that we saw 
that if there was one area where people were, you know, where there was a sort of a building current of impatience or dissatisfaction was with uh, the sort of response to cost of living measures or cost of living challenges, right? So what I'm saying is that this is genuinely really difficult territory for the government to, to navigate because, you know, this government came to power on a platform of, you know, ending wages stagnation. Well, that's not going to happen now because you can't end wages stagnation when inflation is running at 8%. Um, so there's that. There's it mentioned there's obviously the, the Reserve Bank and we're still in a cycle of rising interest rates, which obviously inflate borrowing costs for consumers. Like it's a really nasty set of, of, of crosswinds at the moment. And also we're sort of, we've still got all that sort of overhang associated with the pandemic as well. So we've got high petrol prices. I think I've been saying on the show in the past, God knows how they're going to end this uh, fuel excise. And we've got a question on that in this week's polling, which suggests that that'll be really quite difficult. So look, I mean, the government's setting up a budget to start as it means to continue. It wants to sort of keep on with its own agenda as well as dealing with you know, the sort of the, the stuff that will wash through the cycle at this point in time. But I do think it is a really difficult set of conditions. And interestingly, on The Guardian uh, this morning, if you guys have been over to the site and had a look, there's some new polling out of New Zealand that's looking pretty bad for Jacinda Ardern there as well. Um, now, obviously, she's an incumbent. She doesn't have that sort of upswing of goodwill uh, that a new, a newly elected government has in Australia, but the sort of analysis around that polling indicating that she's in a bit of strife suggests that a lot of that is attributable to New Zealanders' frustration with high inflation and high cost of living. So, you know, it, it's tricky and the capacity of, for governments to really materially alter people's sort of lived reality at the moment is slim so yeah it's going to be it's going to be a lively somewhere between six and 18 months I think yeah Mm. just coming back to the polling Pete so we're looking at support for federal government measures Catherine had been for a number of weeks saying to me what do people think about the fuel excise they'd love to keep it um 60 percent um strongly support or somewhat support the proposition to extend the fuel excise cut beyond September that's obviously very expensive and the government's going to avoid that if they can because amongst all the things that people expect of the government including making good their election promises on funding early learning funding aged care funding the, the the transition to renewables funding the NDIS they also want to reduce government debt of course and this is the needle the government needs to to find a way through so that one there is no real enthusiasm for increasing the rate of job seeker payment for people who are unemployed. There's 44% support for that, 27% opposition and a lot in the middle. And then, of course, the other one, and Catherine and I really struggled on how to explain this in a way that didn't drive a particular outcome, mm-hmm. but to delay the st- stage three income tax cuts, which predominantly benefit higher income earners. But the problem we face is that they kick in initially at 40,000. So it's tax cuts for 40,000 to 200,000, although the the benefits of those at the higher end, because we're effectively flattening the tax rate, are much more pronounced. Look, there is support, 42, 25 against, but not a clamouring that would give you the sense that there's a lot of political cover to delay that. And I guess that would be the one act you could take to 
really put either free up funds for other things that are urgently needed or deal with um, the budget deficit. But I think given the theory of government that Albanese and Labor have bought in, which is we would take a fairly um, defined set of measures to the electorate, we would get in power and then stick to the um, those issues. I, I can't see that happening, although, you know, maybe if things get tighter and harder. So we've moved to voice. Yeah, I just wanted to um, get onto this one because I think voice has really been um, a key priority for the Prime Minister and now we've got this draft wording out. Yeah. You know, there's now a long campaign until the actual yeah. referendum. It's been interesting. It's not a bad starting point, 65-35. In my head, you've got to get to 75-25, almost where you are with movement on climate to be really confident. But there is a solid base to build off. A second question we asked, though, says that a lot of those people that support it don't really know much about it nor understand it at the moment. And I think the challenge is going to be to build the awareness. So you've only got a third of the population knowing anything more than hardly anything about a proposition that's likely to go before the people midway through next year. The, the danger there is it opens up a lot of space for a negative campaign focused on scaremongering. I reckon there's probably three critical things that need to play out. The first is obviously a degree of consensus amongst First Nations people on the voice proposition that goes um, to Parliament. The second is the role the Libs play and whether they see political advantage in standing in the way of this reform or they form a consensus which would leave Pauline Hanson as effectively the no campaign. But I think the most critical challenge is just to explain not just what and the why, but also the, the modest nature of the constitutional question. So this is not, um, as Megan Davis eloquently put in the Saturday paper over the weekend, this is not like the Republic where there's a fully formed model to be debated over as part of the referendum. It is really just the start of that process. So the analogy I'm thinking through at the moment is, if statement from the heart was an invitation to Australia to make peace with our history, then the constitutional change is the RSVP. It's accepting the invitation and then putting it on our legislature to come up with effective models that may change over time. The danger we fall into is if the gallery, even around Gama, was very quick to saying, but what is it? How's it going to work? What's it going to look like? And that to me seems to be the biggest barrier to finding a way through because it's actually defining the wrong question. The constitutional trigger is purely to say there will be a voice, it will be heard, and then it's up to our elected reps working with First Nations people to actually flesh out that bone. And I think where there has been friction already, that it's been around that. So I don't know, like if we can run a campaign on whether we accept an RSVP to an invitation to make peace with our history, I think it's winnable, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah, Catherine, the early polling results, as Pete says, are encouraging, but of course these propositions are, are always difficult. What is your sense of how the coalition is going to treat this? Well, they're still at the table, which is an encouraging sign. Uh, Julian Laser, who is the shadow attorney general and a uh, an avowed uh, supporter of constitutional recognition uh, in terms of the voice 
proposal. That's a good start. He's been on board supporting this proposal for quite a long time. And, you know, he went to Ghana with the, with the Prime Minister, which is a gesture. Obviously, the leader didn't go, but the shadow AG did. I think this is a, a really difficult issue for the coalition party room. Uh, one of the reasons that we've been talking about this for two decades or variants of it, obviously, Uluru's statement was, was 2017, but, the, but the, this whole idea, as, as Pete puts it, of you know, having a reckoning with our history, an institutional reckoning with our history. We've been hoeing at this road for several decades, how we do this. Part of the reason that it, it sort of hasn't progressed is because the coalition party room would probably not favour this, you know, as a landing point. There's sort of, um, you know, there's a spectrum of views between people who are really conservative about the constitution and, you know, people who sort of, you know, prefer, well, you know, Dutton sort of encapsulates these points about, you know, oh, no, not more symbolism, my word, you know, what we need is practical things, as if, you know, the two are somehow mutually exclusive. But anyway, all of that sort of noise in the public space just sort of underscores the, the fact that it is. it will be very difficult to get a, a coalition party room consensus around the idea of the voice folks on the show this week may remember that uh, Scott Morrison kind of wrote this out relatively hard as well during his prime ministership, you know, sort of had Ken Wyatt out there and, you know, things were all about to move along and then things, you know, the break was applied very substantially to the pace of that and that in part reflects, uh, you know, a lack of unanimity in the coalition party room about these propositions. So, look, how's the story going to end? I don't know yet, but I do think that Peter Dutton, in terms of the early sorties, has created space for this for this conversation to occur. And Lisa is definitely an avowed supporter. What we've heard out of the coalition to date has been, let's not rush this, let's just, you know, oh, don't go too fast, oh. you know, which is really, you know, again, a measure of the difficulty of navigating this through the coalition party room rather than, you know, this is a new concept that we shouldn't just thrust on the Australian people. So, look, it's hard to predict. I think, honestly, I think there would be, a number of people who's, uh, if we can put it this way, who would, who would, whose heart would be in the right place about this, but whether or not they can land it, open question. Then you've got the proposition of uh, the prime minister. Well, what does the prime minister do, right? In the event that there's not a bipartisan position ahead of the referendum, what does the prime minister do? Because obviously that increases the degree of difficulty. So, I mean, you haven't even asked me this yet, but let's speculate just for a minute, right? What does the Prime Minister do if that's the situation he finds himself in? Well, it's very important to this Prime Minister personally that we have, a, you know, a genuine crack at this, that we try and get this done. This is something that he he believes in very profoundly and I think anybody watching him over the last couple of weeks will have seen that. I don't think, you know, the Prime Minister suddenly you know, steps back from the fray unless there is a view amongst the Indigenous leadership that, you know, better to better to step away from this than see it fail, right? So all that's to play out. But I think what the Prime Minister is trying to do is make this a personal priority so that Australians can see that the Prime Minister supports it, um, obviously get important Indigenous voices out there. People are not going to agree. There's going to be a spectrum of views. So people have got to get used to this being a debate where everybody doesn't agree. 
And then I think if you're the Prime Minister and you're still steaming ahead trying to get this referendum up, what you do then is you go to the Premiers because a number of the Premiers are supportive of this and, and other sort of, you know, even more advanced propositions in terms of a settlement about the history. So you engage the Premiers. I think you engage as much of corporate Australia is, that is prepared to come on board endorsing this proposal and the full weight of civil society. You're right, and it's the vibe, Murph. It's the AFL and the Rugby League and bringing it together in a way that it's not a technocratic discussion about designs of mechanisms. Yes. It is the RSVP to the invitation. And and that's a lot harder for the Libs to stand in front of. Like, do they say, no, we don't accept the invitation because we don't know what the party's going to be like? come to the party and let's make it work. I'm not sure that lands, but I think it's if we end up in a fight over models, it's cactus. That's exactly the the, the process the Prime Minister is trying to set up. You know, just RSVP to the, to the invitations. We'll work out the details later. Just accept the principle of it and enjoy as many voices in the public arena as he possibly can to try and deliver this cause because we have a Prime Minister who is at this point unsure whether or not he will, this will be a bipartisan position. So mm. very obvious what he's setting up. I do think, though, uh, that this that it is a bit naive to expect that, you know, that Australians, particularly given where our polling is this week, that a, a number of them, you know, that they like it as a concept but they don't really know what it's about. I think it's a bit naive to think that somehow we can avoid the try before you buy mm. uh, proposition playing out in a, in a referendum that we can somehow skate across the the detail here. I, I just don't think that's how it works to the extent that there will be voices out there weaponising various proposals, which, you know, which no one's agreed to, which will then sort of pull the Prime Minister into rebuttal territory, which is not where you want to be. Mm. So, I mean, I don't want to be, you know, Daisy Downer here in this conversation at all. I think That wouldn't be like you. Well, you know, natural pessimist, who brings her along? Um, no, no <laughs> but seriously, no, this is, as Pete says, like, I, I completely agree with your diagnostic. This is a good place to be in. This is a really good place to be in when, at the start of this campaign because there is this sort of positive, positive sentiment around it out there and as Pete said to all of us, there is there's a wedge there. Like, you know, if the Libs are going to go full Tony Abbott on this, well, that's quite risky for them too. There's mm. you know, downside risks there. But yeah, it was interesting in the voter breakdown. Like amongst coalition voters, it's 53-47 support. Labor, it's 77-23. Greens, it's 81-90. And then minor parties, independents, which used to be the pre- preserve of the old right and the One Nations, but now also includes Teal. So we yes. need to sort of probably change that a bit. It's 56-44. So all, all flavours of vote um, are net positive, but, of course, the no vote doesn't need a majority to, to well, poison the water. Yeah, structural things with referenda, they are really hard. You know, it's it's hard to get success, which is, you know, anyway, mm. that's a truism and a statement of the obvious. I think we're saying the same thing, Pete. I'm yeah, just yeah, saying. yeah, no, we're not fighting. We <laughs> well, we're really good. We fight. I mean, it's entertaining when we do. <laughs> but I think I think our assessment is similar. And, but, and I understand the Prime Minister doesn't want to bog down in detail because then there's conflict all the way, right? And the more conflict this is, the more difficult it is. I just think on that detail piece, part of it is driven by the need to continually be, from the gallery, 
scrutinizing propositions, but can that be isolated? The, the actual detail, if the detail of the proposition is put in the constitution, then all the negative campaigning saying we're creating new houses and new um, lines of authority is accurate. You've actually got to keep it out of the constitution. You yeah. also need to have a model that's resilient enough to change over time because if this lands in 100 years, what a voice looks like could be very different to what a voice looks like now. It's just whether we are mature enough to have a conversation about a broad principle and then allow the process to define what that is. Maybe contiguous, but not that's not what we're going to be voting on. Yeah. And for I can see we've got about 630 people on the line with us today. Thank you for joining us. And if you are interested in voice, what the voice to parliament will look like, what the process for coming together for the Uluru Statement from the Heart was because there was a huge number of regional dialogues that happened with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities all around Australia. Um, you can go onto our website, australiainstitute.org.au or onto our YouTube channel and see the webinar we did last week with the Uluru Statement from the Heart, winners of the Sydney Peace Prize for 2021-22. We spoke to Professor Megan Davis and Pat Anderson, uh, two of the architects of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Uh, these are women that have kind of uh, been at the forefront of leading this movement and designing it to incorporate all kinds of people um, from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities whose voices are normally not heard and to talk about a lot of the work that has been done already for what some of that detail might look like. So I recommend people um, check that out as well as that Saturday paper article that Pete was talking about. There is a lot of information around there, but as we were saying, it's a good spot to be in. The public is with, yes, at the moment, and we just kind of have to keep that momentum uh, going ahead of the, the referendum, which is obviously the challenge. But it does make me think of the plebiscite, which although damaging, there was a very positive campaign for marriage equality um, that happened, and I, I hope it ends up, you know, with that positive result again uh, at the end of this process. Catherine, I want to come back to you now uh, with... I guess back to the the climate, we've touched on the, the fact that the legislation has passed through the House of Representatives, um, but I think we've also seen some kind of sensible amendments, the idea that uh, Labor won't jump at a moratorium on new coal mines as part of this climate legislation, but potentially if there's a climate trigger in an EPBC-type um, reform scenario, you know, there's obviously Labor now has to achieve that target. So it, there's, there's plenty more climate legislation, I guess, that will come down the barrel following this kind of establishing of where we're all headed. Were you encouraged by kind of how the parliament has dealt with this so far? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what a relief. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was, yes, I was, well, talk about the natural pessimism. Oh, dear. Um, you know, I was quite concerned that something absolutely sort of dreadful Um would happen again, uh, and fortunately, it did not. Although we need to be, uh, we should we should be clear, Ed, that uh, David Pocock, who's the ACT Independent Senator, uh, hasn't yet 
sort of, well, he, look, he's sounding extremely positive about this legislation when it hits the Senate. I'd be amazed if he scuttled it, like seriously amazed, gobsmacked. Um, but he is yet to articulate his uh, his full wish list in in order to support this once it gets to the the house upstairs. Once it gets to the red room, um, you know what happens to it there. Just you know, just for clarity, we just need to say that um, it's not quite so- sorted yet. But uh, your point is the right one, Ed. This is this is uh, you know there was a lot of energy <laughs> expended, obviously, in trying to nail this legislation because it was important. It was it was a step. It, it meant that the country had moved forward, right after the kind of abject, amoral debacle of the last decade, right. So it's very important in that sense, and it also sets up some procedures that are important. Like you know, if you're going to have a target, legislate it. If you're going to have you know, for 2030, legislate it. If you're going to have a 2050 target, legislate that too. So everybody understands, you know, the rules of the road, where where we're trying to get to. It also sets up some accountability mechanisms, which are important. It deals the Climate Change Authority back into expert advice predicated on climate science. You know, that information needs to be sought and tabled and the, and the responsible minister needs to respond in the event that he's not conforming with it. So, all of these things are important, but what lies ahead is sort of, in practical terms, the most important of all. This is uh, the overhauling of the safeguard mechanism, which is coming up over the next little bit. Uh, as Eb says, the issue of whether or not we fix the you know broken environment laws and and actually make an assessment of the climate impacts of new developments part of the system. It's not currently. I mean, that, I just find that shocking. It's, no, not. No, no, it's bizarre, isn't it? I mean, the climate isn't in the Murray-Darling Basin plan. No, no, no. Like, but at the time these things were sorted, you know, we were still allegedly having a debate about, you know, whether science is a thing. I mean, you know, like it's obviously we've all moved on from that. And also, you know, obviously the um, Tanya Plibersek, the new environment minister last week, knocked back a, a, a Palmer proposal for a coal mine very, you know, close to the Great Barrier Reef. She, she knocked that back, right, and partly on, you know, on, on climate impact. So obviously there's, ministers can use discretion, but there's not an automatic trigger in the in the legislation in order to get that done. Obviously, we're going to see a conversation about that over the next few months. Also very important, we need a transport strategy. You know, I spoke to the uh, the Climate Minister, Chris Bowen, on, on the podcast. If regular potters are listening to this rather than watching us today, you'll know that already, that I had a conversation with him last week that I also canvassed transport. I mean, obviously, sort of cutting the sticker price of electric vehicles is not a transport strategy. We, we've got to see one that involves... Things like vehicle emission standards, things like rolling out infrastructure all around the country to sort of remove the range anxiety issue. A lot of people in Australia, you know, a bit worried about EVs because they like driving long distances in this very big country. So, you know, all of those things have got to be worked out again reasonably quickly over the next few months so that they can consult and start to roll that out. But anyway, look, it was it was a very important thing that happened in the opening two weeks of the parliament, getting that consensus around uh, the rules of the road. Ridiculously, the Liberal Party consigned themselves to, you know, irrelevancy around that proposal because Peter Dutton is still very hopeful that there's another cycle of weaponisation in climate policy you know, about time these guys did the right thing in relation to this issue. But, you know, unfortunately, 
uh, not, uh, at least at this point in time. So although, you know, in fairness, uh, Liberals are out there saying, well, yes, we voted against the 43% legislation, but we're going to have a better target for the next election. So, well, look, you know, let's see. Let's see where they land. I might go to questions from the audience now. I can see we've got a fair few in here. I know we normally stick to the preserve of uh, federal government, but I've got a few people in here asking about state governments and Liberal parties being in trouble at the state level as well as the federal level. Um, I'm not sure if that's referring to the Barillaro saga that's currently unfolding. I believe there's some type of Matthew Guy saga. Correct me if I'm wrong. I've been out of commission for a week. Um, Catherine, um, can you just talk to us a little bit about what's happen- happening to the Liberal Party at the moment and is that going to be a problem for them with upcoming state elections, I guess? Well, certainly uh, there are there are a number of Labor governments in the states at the moment and, uh, and you know, there's I think the only two remaining Liberal governments are New South Wales and Tasmania. I think the, the Labor Party in Tasmania, at least the last time I visited, which was just before the election campaign, seemed content to punch each other's lights out in the new news cycle most days so and that's the, the feds have just kind of entered that situation <laughs> yes right so that that is that then you know there's this uh you know absolutely bizarre um you know whole Barillaro saga which is playing out in in uh, New South Wales at the moment I think uh you know, Dominic Perrottet will be thinking, oh, God, I thought I'd just stabilised. You know, it's obviously there was the transition to away from Gladys Berejiklian. He had to establish himself as a new Premier. They got an absolute smashing around the Lismore floods. Perrottet, rather than, you know, pretending that that was not his fault or that he was somehow not accountable, went into the flood zone, emoted, got, got structures working, um, you know, indicated that he was serious about being a decent premier. I think they handed down a decent budget by all accounts. Then now they're embroiled in this ridiculousness about John Barillaro and, a, and, a, and an overseas position that he apparently thought was fine, that, you know, that he was somehow owed. Um, you know, this is this is sort of highly problematic for them. And it's, and it's also sort of seems to there's a new kind of figure in the government who's <laughs> been drawn into this sort of cycle of horror every single day by the looks of things. It looks as though they've all had conversations about this appointment. And I saw bits and pieces of the Barillaro as evidence yesterday. I'm not watching it closely because it's not my theatre. We have an excellent state New South Wales team who are who are covering this. Uh, extremely well, but every time I tuned in, John Barillaro seemed to be, you know, sort of uh, casting himself as some innocent who'd washed up in a, you know, something beyond his control, um, which was, you know, I mean, somewhat startling. Um, He's the victim. Well, well, it was kind of like, what? I mean, I didn't I didn't watch all day, so I don't know. Maybe there was mm. more light and shade, but from what I saw, it was just kind of like, what? So the um, opposition leader, um, Chris Minns, um, had a pretty good piece in the um, in the Fairfax papers this week, which I think embodies the crazy brave proposition and proof point for Labor that 16 years is too long for any government. So this government is going to be going for its fourth term. 
those with a memory will realise that Labor managed a fourth term um, at the 2007 election, which was a particularly bad opposition leader in Peter Debman, but also a dry run for the work choices election. So there was like a perfect storm. But they got one term too many and they spent the last four years in power knifing premiers and sending ministers either to ICAC or jail. We've got a great precedence in New South Wales for why four terms is too long and Labor's proposition is look what we did and then look what these guys are doing. And we've been having these discussions for a while that, you know, basically the main argument for a change of government is just that after a certain period of time, government corrupts itself. And then you've got Barilaro and the rest of the crew just putting that in stark relief night after night after night. So... A first-term government, this would be something the new leader has to um, clean up. A second-term government, there'd need to be serious changes. A third term going for a fourth term, it does create that sense that you've just got to change it. Um, we're, we're doing some New South Wales polling, which we're working with your guys, Catherine, on um, every now and then. The, the latest polling we had was New South Wales Labor ahead of the Coalition on Primary Vote, but also on that proposition 16 years is too long at 69.31 regardless of who you're going to vote for so I think the dynamics in New South Wales are interesting and the scare campaign could well be Labor saying look what we did. Um, I just want to come to I guess the substance of that and take us to a, a slightly different issue Catherine obviously integrity was a huge issue at the federal election but um, I've been uh, kind of recovering from COVID reading um, all the extracts from the upcoming books about the United States. And it is alarming to me that it was essentially like a couple of generals deciding to defend the constitution that was really all between, that came between Donald Trump overturning a democratically elected election result. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't seem that far-fetched that Trump could be re-elected and we'll be facing all these problems again with fewer people who are as attentive to the importance of integrity and strengthening democracy as we've had in his first term of office. I mean, I don't want to obviously equate what's happening in New South Wales with that, but those are on ends of a, of a spectrum, you know, jobs for mates and jobs for the boys and cronyism and political appointments and that kind of thing is obviously very different to overthrowing um, the democratic results of an election. But, you know, they're a pretty close ally of Australia. Uh, things might be okay now, but we've got big submarine contracts coming down the line. Uh, these things are, are surely something that Australia is going to have to grapple with, if not, you know, Penny Wong in particular. Yeah, but you, you, you sort of fundamental points the right one, that it's all put sort of plots along a spectrum, right? It's very important, like just to the substance of your point, which is, you know, who defends the institutions? Well, we need the institutions to defend the institutions. That's why we bang on about integrity and purpose in politics. Uh, I'm, you know, despite spending many decades to this theatre in very close proximity, remain entirely uncynical about it. It's like it's, it's, it is deeply important for, you know, the political class, for actors that we elect in order to represent our interests in a representative democracy, take their responsibilities with the appropriate gravity and seriousness. It's not only about what you might be able to achieve or set up for yourself. It's about defending 
you know, institutions that are the only thing that stand between us and chaos, right? Like that's that's exact that's what's on the line. That's why it's important. That's why, you know, we all work hard trying to document what's going on because these things matter. And uh, and you know, if we've if we've got sort of people who have lost their way, if we've somehow got elected representatives who have lost that sense of purpose about their representation then that's a big problem. It's sort of more than the spectacle of whether somebody's, you know, behaving like a clown at a parliamentary inquiry. It's about, you know, can we trust these institutions to safeguard our interests, which is the most important thing in, you know, in politics is that. So, um, you know, this is this is Pete's point about, you know, when you're around too long, you might lose your way a little bit with that. I think that's, I think that's possible, but it's also... Um, I think, you know, we, we really need our elected representatives to be very self-aware in that sense, that they are custodians of institutions and they, they need to conduct themselves with that degree of seriousness because we, are, we rely on them to do that. And, uh, and, you know, the American example just demonstrates that you can have a complete perversion of, you know, or an attempted perversion of those ramparts, right, like those really important foundations. And, and also the degree to which things aren't as robust as you think they might be. Exactly. One of the other, one of the interesting yeah. things watching the Barillaro inquiry is a, is a way that after three terms of one side in power, the bureaucracy, you can see them moving to accommodate the will and the needs of the executive that tends to be the product of self-interest and a series of small compromises until it, it it crosses a line. So, yeah, I think it is interesting um, to think through how robust our democracy actually is, um, mm -hmm. which is why that integrity um, play, um, including an ICAC, but also what flows through from that, I think is really you know, one, going to be one of the most critical reforms of this government. Yeah, and as you say, the ICAC's not the only architecture and infrastructure that you can put in place there, but it is a very important one. Um, we do have a few questions about what's going to happen to the AAT and the cronyism of political appointments in the last term of the Morrison government there increasing over time. There is a review that um, the Attorney General, Mark Dreyfus, is undertaking on that front that I think we've spoken about before. Um, Catherine, I want to come back to two different tax questions. We've got a lot of people asking about uh, is there a growing public mood to ditch the stage three income tax cuts and also a lot of people asking about a windfall profits tax on gas companies, two very different kind of propositions. Um, I know, but I see, I see the segue there. That's all good. <laughs> no worries. Well, we could do this quickly. Uh, look, our polling... Uh, this week indicates that there is not a groundswell out there in the community to defer the stage three tax cuts, sadly. And I think, you know, we, we spoke a little bit earlier in the show today just about the difficulties of, uh, you know, the Labor Party having promised not to abandon them, then all of a sudden <laughs> saying, oh, well, actually, circumstances have changed and, you know, right, etc. So uh, I'd look at this point, there doesn't seem to be a groundswell Look, as it gets closer to, uh, you know, D-Day on the Stage 3 tax cuts, you know, who knows what position will be in budget-wise or economy-wise, you know, maybe there will be some room for the new government to argue the case that we need to delay their introduction or something, but at this stage there's no, there's 
no sign or evidence of that. In terms of the um, windfall profits tax on the gas producers, which is very much around in, in concept. And it's got a huge number of kind of prominent public advocates. <laughs> yeah, well, the Australia Institute has sort of done some work in this space. We had the, the Secretary General of the UN. I don't know if he, I don't know if he, I can't remember if he explicitly endorsed a windfall um, profits tax or not, but he was certainly there was some very big fighting words uh, from the UN Secretary General uh, in recent days, just about the fossil fuel industry and about sort of uh, you know profit taking on on the way out, um, which is the, the cycle that we're in now. Um, look, I think we've said before on the show, probably not for several weeks, Ed, because I don't think we've needed really to go there. I'm just struggling to remember. But anyway, um, one area that the government's left itself some room to move on uh, pre-election is the multinational tax avoidance space. Uh, you know, the government, uh, you know, announced some measures ahead of time, ahead of the election, um, and made it clear that more may happen in this space. So they've, get, they've got a little bit of room um, and uh, and look, there's a lot of ministers around because of gas supply issues in the country at the moment. Ed Husick last week absolutely let rip against the gas gas companies and talking about their social licence and so on and so forth. So I don't know, maybe there is a bit of a political constituency for this, but I do still think it is very difficult for a Labor government, you know, a number of them were ministers in the Rudd-Gillard period when the mining super profits tax was obviously an issue that nearly killed them. Um, so, you know, I don't think that'll be their first resort, but the idea of, uh, you know, of, um, you know, the gas sector doing very well at this point in time and also then not necessarily guaranteeing <laughs> domestic supply to Australians, it's probably probably not real smart of them at this point in time. Um, so anyway, I think it's a bit of a watch this space. I wouldn't anticipate some new massive tax. I just don't think that that's where they would automatically land, but I think there is some room here to um, where they where it's possible they could do something. Yeah, Pete, that issue of a social licence for gas, I think, is so important because on the one hand, it's kind of seen as this great transition fuel, even though it's a fossil fuel itself. But on the other hand, yeah, like I think there has been a growing backlash against this idea that, you know, they're raking in the profits and yet, you know, the ACCC is and, and others of um, talking about, you know, what little they give back and that there's going to, you know, they're exporting all of our gas instead of selling it to us at a decent price. Like there is there is a social licence argument in there somewhere, isn't yeah, there? But, but it is complicated. Like my generation remember natural gas with the blue leotards on the mate on on the um on the tv ad it was it was it was amazing and um i i I think then you go through the journey to fracking which created real environmental concerns not to do with the fossil fuel nature but just the disruption to aquifers and water tables but the other complication at the moment is the debate around um gas reserves so on one level there is this whole debate saying we want access to our gas as it's something that will assist us with our immediate energy needs and then there is the whole broader debate about the development of the gas industry and the profitability of the gas industry so we sometimes fall into the trap of making um a either coal evil or gas evil it, it it's much more nuanced than that and 
finding a way to A, have an economic story about how much the industry is making and B, have a transition story about the role that different energy sources are going to play um, meeting our needs in the long term is all grown-up work and it's not stuff that you can actually either put in a leotard or on a cartoon. I want to see, I want to see Cole in a leotard. Oh. <laughs> it'd be lumpy it'd be lumpy it'd be me I'd and black be all. I'd be all. just saying <laughs> and just sticking I guess with gas and coal and climate um, we've got a couple of people in here asking about the changes around offshore wind Catherine is that something that you can speak to yeah, well, it, the government uh, moved forward, I think it was Friday, I think it was this Friday just gone um, with sort of flagging a new um, offshore wind precinct to sort of further develop offshore wind. Uh, and uh, and interestingly, well, certainly in the comments I saw quoted, I didn't actually write the story last week, a colleague did, but I saw Darren Chester, who's the Victorian national who's electorate is is adjacent to the area that's in contemplation, sounding very positive about it, uh, that there were good opportunities associated with that. Um, Obviously, you know, these things, these developments are always uh, controversial in place, right? A lot of people can support renewable energy as a principle, but don't necessarily want a giant wind farm in front of their beach house or you know, are concerned about migratory paths for birds or various other things that come up in the process of considering these things. Um, so anyway, again, that one's that one's got a way to run. That one's got a way, a way to roll. But um, again, the government sort of knows that uh, you know, now it's now it's got these targets legislation almost through the parliament that they are actually now going to need to develop the you know or deliver the outcome. So. Um, you know, I don't think we'll be watching the grass grow under Chris Bowen's feet, if that's even an analogy anymore. I can't even remember that. <laughs> I think he'll be on, he's, he's moving quickly, basically, to try and get a number of these things sort of going simultaneously. And just a final word before we wrap up, Catherine, I know you've um, talked about the coalition's nuclear strategy just being a further example of delay. Um, could you just kind of talk talk us through that? Because it always amuses me that somehow we can't get renewables right because it's too complicated, but <laughs> building a nuclear industry overnight is going to be a piece of cake, Catherine. Yeah, no worries. Well, it was, it, it's sort of odd at many levels. You know, we did have the coalition government signing up to the AUKUS arrangement, which was always perplexing in the absence of a domestic nuclear industry, but the coalition when they were in power five minutes ago, said, oh, no, no, we're not having a domestic nuclear industry. No, 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 we don't need any of that. It'll all be fine. We'll just import the reactors and people will bolt them in. It's fine. This same, you know, mob saying that, uh, and now Peter Dutton's rolled into opposition, has had to say something on the day, obviously, where it was clear that they were going to vote down the targets legislation, has suggested that one of his MPs, who has already done an inquiry into nuclear energy, already done one in the last term of government, made a number of recommendations that Scott Morrison comprehensively ignored, uh, will now do a second inquiry for the Liberals about nuclear. Now, to be clear, look, a lot of people oppose nuclear on principle. I'm not one of those people. I am a get the emissions down via whatever technology you have available person. I'm not particularly caught up in being anti-nuclear. I'm I'm quite fine with it. But But the thing is, it is the most expensive 
energy technology available at this point in time. The small modular reactors that people are talking about, according to the CSIRO, are at least a decade away from delivery. And like, what? You know, it's it's sort of, it, it it's nuts. You know, we had an inquiry in Australia in 2006 that was led by Ziggy Switkowski uh, for John Howard. Uh, look, if we built nuclear power plants at that time, that probably would have made sense, waiting for another decade. Also would have yeah. required a, a carbon tax, correct? Well, exactly. well, this is the thing. You know, all these advocates of nuclear energy strangely also oppose carbon taxes and, and are from often from political parties that are allegedly not in favour of government subsidy. And nuclear requires both. It requires government subsidy and a carbon price to be in any way economic. So, look... The point I was making last week, or maybe it was the week before anyway, I've tried to expunge this from my memory, is that this is ridiculous. And uh, and I, I, I very much hope uh, that, you know, my, my colleagues in, in this corridor and elsewhere, whom I very much respect, will not indulge this as some, you know, actual proposal because it is not an actual proposal. It is just something to say on the day you're voting down a 43% emissions reduction target. So it's a nonsense. The end. That's it for today. Thank you all for listening to the recording of our live show, Pole Position, which is hosted by the Australia Institute. A reminder again, make sure when you listen to these episodes that you pull up the slides of the latest Guardian Essential Poll from the Essential Media website. It's very easy to track that down. This episode was produced by Miles Herbert and we've got the double Miles. Miles Martignoni is this show's EP. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.